Welcome to Blight Christmas. I'm Sean Dillon, your host. Today we have two pieces for your oral enjoyment, both hearkening back to the early 20th century holiday horror traditions. The first piece is the first half of a two-parter, entitled Remarks Upon a Recent Visitation, by Patrick Harrigan. Patrick, a self-described local blowhard, occasionally edits academic books about new media and games, co-hosts a podcast about the TV show Doctor Who, and inflicts spoken word pieces on Twin Cities audiences, collected in his books The Lecture Tour and On Tour Forever. This subtle piece is inspired by the work of classic ghost story author M.R. James. Give it a listen. Remarks Upon a Recent Visitation by Pat Harrigan Visiting friends in Europe earlier this month, I had the great pleasure of spending time with Professor Maxim Valenkov, formerly of St. Petersburg, but now along with his family, a permanent resident of England, where he teaches Russian language and literature at a certain well-known and ancient university. Being gregarious and easy to love, Professor Valenkov's Christmas parties are well attended by his students and colleagues, and I had the pleasure of witnessing in his rooms the energy of youth in full exuberant display. The punch flowed, the garlands and the tinsel gleamed in the tastefully dimmed electric lights, the spines of brown old books shone like polished wood, and the spirited young men and women, released from the obligations of their term, but not yet delivered unto the mercies of their individual families, bubbled and wassailed and were altogether beautiful. After a time, everyone departed, and I found myself nearly alone in Professor Valenkov's chambers. This was unusual, not a little disappointing, since in other times I had often found myself drinking till dawn with the professor, but he had pleaded a certain indisposition and retired only a little after midnight, leaving, I happened to notice, with an attractive young lecturer from the Byzantine Studies Department. As a winter storm had brewed, I was expected to stay the night on his sofa, comfortable enough with the fire drawn up, and not the first time I had crashed out among the detritus of a cheerful party. So it was that I found myself unexpectedly alone with the elderly Professor James, whom I had not noticed much during the party proper. We sat next to each other in old wingback leather chairs facing the fire and got acquainted, drinking brandy and smoking. I mean, of course, that he smoked. I quit that habit over two decades ago. Professor James proved a droll and intelligent man, a real raconteur, and if I cannot remember perfectly the story he told me that night, it reflects more on myself. It had been a long evening, I beg your indulgence, than it does on the professor. My well of narrative running dry, the professor was more than happy to fill the empty spaces of this conversational night. Let me tell you a story about a young man of my acquaintance, he said to which I naturally assented. To the best of my recollection, this is the story Professor James told me. It concerned a young man, recently discharged from the army after a brief but distinguished career. This young man had seen a fair share of tragedy in his short life, not just the discomforts and horror of war, but also loss of a very personal kind. While he was deployed in the enemy theater, cut off from friendly contact, his wife in England had gone into labor with their first child, and both she and the child had died. 
Our young man received the news some while after the fact, and by the time he was able to return home, both wife and child, in accordance with orders previously established and never modified, had been cremated, so that he never laid eyes on his wife again in death or life, and never once saw the face of his stillborn child. Of the widower's grief, Professor James passed lightly over, and so shall I do. The story resumes a year or so later after the young man's discharge from the army and his enrollment in Professor James's college. Older by a few years than most of the other students, he kept himself detached from the life of the university, and his object of study, theological history, was also one to mark him apart from most ordinary concerns. Professor James, an authority on medieval architecture, had the young man as a student in only one class, but it was enough to form a special bond between the two, and they spent many hours in each other's company, rambling among the churches and churchyards of the town, examining the old stones, the windows, the crosses, chancels, naves, and altars, especially and most of all those details of the college's great chapel, envy of the world's Christian antiquarians. All of this presented alongside Professor James's deep and erudite historical narration. The professor flattered himself that he was able to, in some way, assuage the young man's sadness during this time. For our young friend did seem to be healing, at least partially. He seldom referred to his late wife and seemed resigned to her loss, but the memory of his child was painful still and could not be referred to. My heart was lost while I was far abroad, he said once. Professor James was awkward in these matters, he confessed, and would prefer to return the conversation to the decorative stencils of the chancel arch mural, repainted not even really that long ago at all, he explained to his attentive pupil. In that Christmas season, which was in especially cold and bitter one, the river froze hard as ironwood and the rooms could not be kept warm. The steam pipes buckled and choked if not continually attended to, and the students were grateful to leave for their homes. Our young man, having no family of his own and out of compassion for the staff who would otherwise stay behind, volunteered to tend the college buildings for the duration of the break. The college supplied provisions for his meals, and after a fare thee well in Professor James's underheated rooms, he was left alone the only living soul in those blocks of ancient buildings, existing in a manner, as Herman Melville once put it, like the one warm spark in the heart of an arctic crystal. During these weeks, he kept himself busy with furnaces and coal scuttles and telegrams received and cold sandwiches to prepare, but there came a time in every short day when he could not discover more work to do, and inevitably he would find himself once again in the hollow and magnificent chapel, where he would seat himself in one of the long rows of empty choir stalls, wrapped in sturdy winter clothing, and by the light of an oil lamp he would stare at the towering reredos behind the altar, and every night find himself unable to pray. One early evening, just after settling down and restlessly casting his gaze around every corner and cornice, his eyes alighted near the left side of the chapel's huge and famous organ and he began to fancy that there was a figure of some sort hunched down there, a lump as of a creature crouching, just a little behind where he knew a roundel of a Tudor rose under crown jostled awkwardly with a Roman profile in relief, 
not Caesar, not Cicero, he had often wondered who it was sporting that imperial, or was it Republican, sneer. But this night, he found himself focused not on such remembered details, but on that odd imaginary figure, impossible to make out at this distance in this shadowy light. It was ridiculous to get up to look. What could it be? A tramp? The doors were locked. He was in charge of them himself. Not an animal, unless it were dead, because it did not move. To stand up would disrupt the precarious warmth of his winter coat, and at that point he might just as well return to his cold apartment. So he decided it was imagination after all. It was ridiculous in so many ways. He was ridiculous. He had known many men who had died without any sort of fear, and in desert sunlight, too, in the terrifying desert sun. These were men who moved forward and didn't remain frozen in place, and for the first time since the death of his wife and a child, he felt a stirring of real irritation, almost rising to anger. At what? he asked himself. But anger it surely was, and he remembered St. Augustine's words, that hope has two beautiful daughters, and their names are anger and courage. So he surprised himself by standing up and approaching the shadow, and as he did so, the shadow figure stood up too and slipped behind the organ. He hesitated just a moment, then followed. The lamp revealed nothing behind the organ except the familiar, frightening carvings and bas-reliefs. He continued on his way around the instrument and, taking a moment to calm himself, descended the stairs and let himself out of the chapel and locked the door behind him. The world in silver shined under a bright moon, and he saw the path he had worn in the snow from the chapel to the dormitory, where the yellow light from his bedroom glowed. As he watched, a figure passed across this window. He cannot return to the chapel. He must go home. He trod the path and into the building, holding the lamp high as he ascended the cracked and complaining wooden stairs. His bedroom door stood ajar. He had not left it so, and from within a strong warmth radiated. He had not yet made up this evening's fire. He extinguished the lamp and left it at the threshold. At this point, I must apologize to my audience. There is some sort of foreshortening in my memory. Whatever it was that Professor James told me at this point has vanished from my mind, except in its most superficial impressions. There was a conversation of some sort, I know, and images of death caught within the fire, and eventually I know this, a dark figure stood and left the room, leading by the hand a smaller creature or human, and they stopped to kiss him, I think, before they went, but not in the way that a woman kisses her husband or a child its father. And after this, Professor James told me that the emergency services needed to be called. Who called them, I wonder? And the young man, although he had tried to kill himself, I am sorry to say, had made a full recovery, or so it was believed, the professor having received a letter from him not very long ago, in which the young man expressed his strong friendship and his regret for abandoning his studies, though he had found a good position in some sort of industrial shop and had even married again to a young woman he had met in a pub and of whom he was sure the professor would strongly approve. It's possible I missed some part of the conclusion of this story. 
In the morning, alone in Professor Valenkov's lodging, frost and a fringe of snow obscured the windows, but the fire was still alive, a little, and so I awoke into a failing but comfortable red light. The professor soon collected me for breakfast, but made no mention of Professor James, and later when he and his young friend drove me to the station and he kissed my cheeks, unfeeling as they were in the bitter cold, he apologized for leaving me alone the night before, and he cried a few Russian tears at this unslavic abandonment. It was nothing, I said, and I would see him again soon, as indeed I hope I shall. And as for you, my friends, with your attentive ears, to you all, I also wish a happy holiday season, and it is my fondest hope that I will see you all again as well before too long. Good night, and the best of dreams upon this midnight. Our second piece today is Antigonish, a poem by William Hughes Mearns. Produced and performed by Wesley Erickson. First published in 1899, this evocation of a haunting is named for the town in Nova Scotia where the haunting supposedly occurred. I was also interested to learn that this poem inspired a jazz tune, The Little Man That Wasn't There, that was a big hit for the Glenn Miller Band in 1939. Worth checking out. A big contrast to Wesley's version, which we will play for you now. Yesterday, upon the stair, I met a man who wasn't there. He wasn't there again today. I wish, I wish he'd go away. last night at three. The man was waiting there for me. But when I looked around the hall, I couldn't see him there at all. Go away. Go away. Don't you come back anymore. Go away, go away, and please don't slam the door. Last night, I saw upon the stair a little man who wasn't there. He wasn't there again today. Oh, how I wish he'd go away. Oh. 
The Dead North Podcast and Blight Christmas are a production of Oncoming Productions with assistance from Hot Chocolate Media. I have been your host, Sean Dillon, and intro and outro music are by Eric Ostrom. The copyrights for all pieces are held by their creators. If you would like to support the artists who've created this work, we'd love your support. There's a link to our PayPal fund in the show notes. We all wish you a very happy holiday season with just enough chills to make you appreciate the warmth of home, friends, and family. Stay safe out there.